to Let's Get Our Ship Together, a queer women of color debrief on the latest in queer lady and POC representation in television and film. I'm Amira. And I'm Aphrodite. And in this episode, we are going to be going through our list of our fave queer women of color ships, past and present. But before Mm -hmm. we jump into that, there are a couple of things we wanted to talk about. First, I wanted to give a shout out to a movie that I saw recently. This movie actually came out last year, 2017, but I had never heard of it before because, as usual, movies that are made by and for queer people are seldom advertised. It's called Signature Move. It is on Amazon Prime, so you can stream it there if you have that service. It has a lot of good stuff. There is a lesbian Pakistani Muslim lawyer is the main character. She oh my is God. masculine of center. Her love oh interest is a Mexican-American woman. So the character names are Zainab and Alma. Zainab is figuring out how to live with her recently widowed mother, who is religious and traditional and is trying to find a good husband for her clearly extremely gay daughter. Zainab, the daughter, has recently taken interest in wrestling. And so when she meets Alma, she finds out that Alma's mother used to be a luchadora in Mexico back in the day. It's a great romance story. I think it's really cute. Two queer women of color, an interracial ship where neither one is white. I know, it it has it all. It's amazing. And I really love how female-centered the story is. It's about these two girls and their relationships with their mothers and their relationships with each other. It's it's amazing. It's really good. Wow. I can't believe I've never heard of this movie. I couldn't but believe I'm it either. I'm so down to watch it ASAP. Yeah, yeah. Signature move on Amazon Prime. I, I don't know where else it would be available, but man, it, it was a good movie. It was a really nice, like, feel-good, funny movie. Um, oh, my God. I have important fangirl homework. I need to get on this stat. <laughs> I know. I know. I couldn't believe it, you know, because I'm always looking for Arab and or Muslim representation and especially to see, like, uh, a masculine of center character. I mean, that was, it, it, it checked a lot of boxes for me. So I was really excited to, to watch that movie. And I how told- did you, how were, how were you not screaming about this to me? I know. I'm just so. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, we watched it recently and Kristen was like, are you going to text Aphrodite about this right away? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to wait to tell her about it. Cause I want to drop this bomb and get oh her genuine God. reaction on oh the my podcast. <laughs> I'm kind of speechless right now. <laughs> to I'm, be fair, like, it was only a few days ago. I didn't hide it from you for that long. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm, this is like a great surprise. I'm really happy to yeah, be surprised yeah, by this. I know. Wow. Okay, I'm down. Signature move, it's happening. Okay, and then no, there's something else that we talked about before that we wanted to get back to. Aphrodite, if you want to. So if you're a queer lady and you're as invested in pop culture as us, then you are aware of the controversy surrounding Ruby Rose's casting as Batwoman. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we talked about this a few episodes ago. Where we basically said Ruby Rose can't act and she can't carry the show. Right. So <laughs> no, Those then, were our complaints. Those were our only complaints. And then since then, people all over the internet have been freaking out. And there's like a hashtag that's been going around called Recast Batwoman. And there are like three central reasons why people have been complaining about Ruby Rose. And only one of them in our view, is valid. The first reason, and the valid one, is the fact that she can't act. This is a fact. Yeah, (laughs) there are many, many more talented people who could easily take this role and do a much better job with it. I mean, the list is endless. 
The second reason that people are upset is that the character is canonically a lesbian. And because Ruby Rose identifies as gender fluid, then she's not sufficiently lesbian Mm -hmm. to play this role. Mm -hmm. And that's just stupid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as Ruby Rose herself said, she's been out since she was 12. In the queer community, I think it's important that we remember to respect how people identify. It's possible to identify as genderqueer and a lesbian at the same time. It doesn't work like, oh, you have to identify as female to be, you know, I think we need to break down the walls of our categories a little bit. So and that apparently is the thing that drove her off Twitter, because she was so upset and hurt by people's comments, um, especially fans from the queer community saying that she wasn't queer enough. So I that just really rubs me the wrong way. Frankly, I actually don't think it makes sense to chastise someone in the queer community Mm -hmm. for playing a queer role yeah i think people have gotten very carried away of like oh this person doesn't fit this specific box and that's why they shouldn't be able to play this specific role right but queer people on the whole have a harder time finding roles it's kind of like telling a brown actress that she shouldn't take the role of another character of a color because she is not exactly the same race or ethnicity as the other character of color when people of color in general have a harder time getting roles in Hollywood. That's true. I do think that that example is a little debatable though. You know, it depends on what they're being cast as and how that that character is being portrayed. Personally, as an Arab, I've definitely noticed a lot of negatively portrayed Arab characters are actually cast, they cast other brown people to play them. Because like as a kid, I always wondered, I was like, why would these Arabs sign up for these roles that are so clearly racially charged against Arabs? And then I later found out they're actually not Arab people who are taking the roles in the first place. So it's multifaceted. But I think like there's a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. It's not Mm -hmm. like binary, yes, no, like this actor taking this role is oppressive to a group of people. No, exactly. Ruby Rose taking the role of a queer character does not oppress a group of people. Right, right. Right? And so the third reason, I think the more controversial one, is the fact that the character of Batwoman, Kate Kane, is canonically Jewish, at least in the recent comics. Right. Um, Actually, her queerness and her Jewishness were both recent additions. Yes, not like the original, original Batwoman from decades ago was not queer or Jewish. Yeah. But the... (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's, Uh, back in the day (laughs) the reason why i think the jewish argument doesn't hold is that plenty of jewish actors play non-jewish roles Mm -hmm. if you're a white person and you're jewish you can still play other white characters who are not jewish and just as plenty of non-jewish actors have played jewish roles jewish actors have played non-jewish roles the argument that jewish stereotypes are used too heavily in hollywood that one i buy oh yeah there's definitely anti-semitism in hollywood but i mean oh yeah is she taking this role from a jewish actor are the roles that scarce that jewish actors aren't getting work no no (laughs) no so we just want to put that out there just to set the record straight about where we stand on this issue. Obviously, it's a controversial topic and there's more to be said. But I think as women of color who are in queer fandoms, I feel like a sense of responsibility to say like, hey, this isn't the same thing. But back to this week's topic, uh, which is our favorite queer women of color ships of all time. And (sighs) I'm really excited by Mm -hmm. this. We came up with some criteria uh, and we're only going to talk about five ships. We had to really limit it because podcast can't last forever (laughs) as much as we would love for it to first that it has to be a canonically queer ship Uh, the second criteria is that there has to be at least one woman of color in the ship yes and then the third is that we're focusing just on tv series that are based in the u.s 
But we've also ruled out a number of queer women of color ships according to our criteria of they don't actually belong together. The no TPs, <laughs> as, no you, TPs. as you yeah. fondly called them. Yeah, Thanks. the no TPs. <laughs> Bet and Tina. I'm, mm. I'm going to put it out there. Bet and Tina did not work for me on the L word. Carmen deserves better than Shane. Oh, my God. Right. To say the talk- least. Yes. To say the least. Um, I'm like, is anybody good enough for her? I don't think so. Maybe you, Amira. <laughs> I'm so flattered that you would think that. <laughs> so, so that's all, just on the L word. But, and, but like, I guess in more recent Queer Women of Color ships, Alex and Maggie, I love Maggie Sawyer, but Maggie mm. and Alex don't belong together because Alex wants kids. Yeah, and that ship officially docked. They did split up. When we say we ship someone, it means that you just want them to be together. So they don't actually have to be together for them to be a valid ship. But for our purposes for this list, I think it's appropriate to discuss ships that we think should be together. And obviously, they don't even think they should be together. So, <laughs> so-, <laughs> so we're going to respect their opinions. Yes, I mean, and I agree with them wholeheartedly. Like, you know, if one person wants kids and the other one doesn't, you know, one person's going to be miserable for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So. On Orange is the New Black, Pousse mm-hmm. and So-So, they're an interracial yeah. queer women of color ship. I felt like it sort of happened and they weren't meant to be. I'm not really sure all the things that they were supposed to have in common. It, it really seemed to me like it was just like they found each other as like a source of solace while in prison together. Yeah. Do you think they would have stayed together had they both gotten out of prison? Do we think that even if this story took place in real life, that they would have gotten together in the first place? I don't yeah. know. I also ruled out Pousse and So-So and Emily and Maya. And so I ruled out Amaya and I ruled out Puse and Soso because both of those ships fulfill, in my opinion, the definition of the barrier gaze trope. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. And so I'm just mad about that. The barrier gaze trope really applied in that circumstance. Okay. Well, that's interesting because a couple of the ships we have on our list that we're going to discuss include dead people. Include, <laughs> well, includes, there's two that involve the barrier gaze trope and whether or not it applies to that situation. So we can get into that later. Yeah. Back to Pretty Little Liars ships, Amaya, which is Emily and Maya, and Emerson, which is Emily and Allison. You don't like Amaya because of the barrier gaze trope. I tend to agree with that, although I did really ship them pretty hard, I want to say. Oh, no, no. Trust me, I ship them hard, too. Yeah, yeah. I really love that relationship. And just, like, the brokenness that Emily felt after Maya's disappearance and death, I felt it with her. I just felt like, why couldn't you just have Maya disappear and come back later? Yeah, yeah. That would be great. I know. And then, of course, Emerson is terrible because I hate Allison. I don't even know why that was. A th- I, I don't know why they're OTP. I totally disagree with the way that show went on that. But yeah. But do yeah. you ship Emily and Paige? Like, are Emily and Paige you're an OTP for you? If I had things my way, it would be Emily and Maya. Because and even if you look at the pattern of all the other girls on that show, their OTPs were their first pairings, no matter how problematic they were. Mm, they went snap. back to those first boys. Yeah. that they were ever with. I think that Emily deserved that ending as well because oh. Maya was truly the best one for her. Paige, I think, was good. They had a very problematic start. She but... tried to drown her. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it's Slim Pickens in Rose. I don't know. I mean, I feel like a lesbian cropped up every couple of episodes. When you compare what Paige did to Emily at the beginning of the relationship versus what Allie did to Emily mm. in their whole 
friendship growing up. I mean, it was kind of messed up. I ship Amaya pretty hard too. And I stopped watching the show after Maya died. You got out early and I applaud you for that. <laughs> okay, cool. I don't want to call them an, a no TP because they're not a no TP for me. We're just not going to include them in our top five. So our top five, we'll talk about in no particular order. Yeah, it was um, too hard to, <laughs> to rank them. We found so. So just to put it out there, we're talking mm-hmm. about Korra and Asami on Legend of Korra. Kat and Adina on The Bold Type, Elena and Sid on One Day at a Time, Kelly and Yorkie in Black Mirror's San Junipero, mm. and Root and Shaw and the Machine on Person of Interest. <laughs> 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 uh, that's appropriate. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Let's just get started. Let's okay. talk about these ships. I want to talk about Korasami first, because as we heard last week, Asami is at the top of your your fantasy mm-hmm. girlfriend list. How do you feel about Asami being with Korra? Because you even mentioned then that you don't necessarily think that Korra's maybe the best girlfriend for her. But maybe you're just comparing her to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I guess this is a problem with me and the Kadena ship, too. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Korra, in the early seasons of Legend of Korra, she was just hot-headed and not ready for Asami. I feel like Asami started off a pretty grown woman and stayed a grown woman uh, Mm -hmm. the entire series. But we saw Korra grow. We did see Korra grow. I went back and I rewatched the entire series. Uh, (laughs) Just casually. Just casually. (laughs) In book three and four, Korra is traumatized and basically experiences a disability where she loses her abilities. And she goes away for a while and then comes back. And what was great about their scenes in the reunion is is how well they clicked together. Even their fight sequences, they just knew how to work as a team. We see that even in the comics, too, where Korra and Asami just work really well together as a team. Korra is the great leader for the city, and Asami is sort of the brains behind the operation, thinking about how can we actually execute this plan. And Korra is largely muscle, but has a lot of heart. I think they're a very stereotypical Gryffindor-Ravenclaw pairing. Ooh. You know, Cora is like the strong, but often rash, tender-hearted Gryffindor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Asami, where I once would have said she was a Slytherin, just because she kind of used her cunning to get her way, I really think she's more of a Ravenclaw because, I, I mean, not just the smarts, but like what she, how she uses them. Um, and she still cares for her friends too. So I think she would be best as a Ravenclaw, maybe with like Gryffindor qualities. I feel like they work well together as a team. Mm-hmm. Oh, for Uh, sure. And it's great that they have this friendship as a foundation. Think about the closing scene at the end of book four, the series finale, with them holding hands, with the spirit portal behind them, just lighting them up. If that single scene is not the most beautiful OTP finale scene ever. Can I just say, though? Yeah. I'm still a little bit bitter about how the series ended. Oh, Because, and here's why. This show was one of those shows where the people making the show are so proud of themselves. They're like, look at this queer representation. And then they get backlash from both sides, right? They get backlash from homophobes being like, this is gross. We don't want queer representation. And then they also get backlash from queer people who are like, what queer representation? What is this? What are you talking about? I didn't see anything. But all they respond to is the homophobic backlash. And they're like, oh, you know, we don't care what the homophobes say. We're proud of like, blah, blah, blah. And the queer community is still like, what are you proud of? Like, I haven't seen anything. I have to say, I mean, rewatching the series, it's definitely there. But 
when I was originally watching the series, I did not pick up on any sort of queer connection between Korra and Asami. Especially in that last scene. I mean, the shippers were so excited about it. And I was like, that's it? Like, I thought they were going to kiss like Aang and Katara. You know, it was the mirror image of how Avatar The Last Airbender ended. And mm-hmm. they didn't give them a queer kiss on television because apparently that was too much. And so to me, it was never made explicitly clear it was almost like a Xena, yeah. quote unquote, queer baiting kind of way where it was like, oh, we know, wink, wink, but they're not actually going to like explicitly say it. And so it, it kind of felt unfair and that they only were canonically explicitly together in the comics. Overall, I love this relationship and I do ship them really hard. I just I still feel a little bit cheated by how the, the series ended. No, I think that's a valid critique. I think it's totally fair. Thank you. Because I watched the show knowing that Korasami was going to happen. Yeah, you were, expect- you were looking for it. Yeah, I was looking for it and I was excited for it. And I also read a lot of stuff um, before watching the series. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was familiar with the way that the writers, do we call them Brike? Yeah. And- yeah, yeah, <laughs> Brian and Mike, yeah. Their hands were tied with Nickelodeon and it being a children's show. And that's why book four aired online and not on TV. And I also read a lot about how Mako and Korra Makora was basically mm-hmm. the competing ship. Some of our excitement about Korasami is how it basically was an FU to the Makora shippers. Yeah, I mean, there was a whole love triangle, right? Because Mako dated both of them. And then who knew? Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> the also- two girls would get together in the end. It's been my dream come true of every stupid love triangle I've ever seen. They both dated the same guy and wound up with each other. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> I lo- we, have, I- we have queer women of color representation, we have bisexual representation, we have men getting snubbed representation. Yes, thank you. <laughs> How every single love triangle should end. Yes. Like, I would I like agree. to see every single love triangle end up like Horasami. Oh God, what a life <laughs> that would be. <laughs> Maybe we can talk now about Kelly and Yorkie and Black Mirror's San Junipero episode, which, by the way, won both Emmys for both its categories. So Phenomenal episode. If anybody who's listening to this has not yet seen it, please drop everything you're doing and go watch it right now because it's amazing. So this is one of the chips that, spoilers, I want to know, do you think that it falls under the barrier gaze trope? Because they technically do die at the end, but it's framed in a way that they live happily ever after. I have a different definition of the barrier gate, or I have a more complex and nuanced definition, I'll say, which is that if a character chooses death and it's not because they're self-hating and it's not because, oh my God, I can't be with the woman I love because she's straight. This is like basically a double suicide um, (laughs) situation, right? (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah. But they're choosing the path of happiness. Barrier Mm -hmm. gaze is where, in my view, the character is denied agency. And the character is not given the power to make decisions for themselves. And where they're killed by a stray bullet. In this case, if the characters are choosing death because that's the choice that makes them happy, that to me gives them all the agency that they deserve. That's a really interesting take on it. And I like it because it kind of allows for discussion. I feel like a lot of deaths could fit in kind of a gray area under Mm -hmm. that description. I would say, though, that whether or not the character wants something, you have to remember that there's a writer behind that character who is killing that character. I would also add, though, to your description, another thing that matters is did their death serve to 
fuel an ongoing plot line. Especially if they're used to forward the character arc of a straight person. The death of a queer person for the benefit of other characters, again, I think denies that character agency too. Because it makes it not about them. And usually their queer partner is left sad and in a lot of these shows what we see is that they're not even given another love interest later they're like oh yeah we did the queer storyline it's over now i mean kelly and yorkie they're in our top favorite queer women color ships of all time even though they have some major differences like obviously yorkie this was her first time in a queer relationship ever yeah. whereas kelly's had some more experience yeah uh, she's openly bisexual mm-hmm. woman of color kelly is the more like vibrant vivacious one yorkie's the nerdy shy one who's mm-hmm. got the glasses on and like the weird outfit in the club <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah and we find out why you know because she was in a car accident from such an early age that she never really got to experience her youth and i love that that episode made heaven is a place on earth into a gay song like it's a gay song now that's it straight people can't play it you can't listen to it without paying gay people royalties (laughs) those are the rules i'm sorry not only do you both die you die around the same time and you both get to go to the same virtual heaven Mm -hmm. sounds perfect this was a huge sacrifice on kelly's part her and her late husband's daughter died before this technology was available and so her husband when he passed did not want to do the whole San Junipero thing because he was like if there is some sort of afterlife where our daughter is I want to be there with her so she basically abandoned her family to be with Yorkie for however long she chooses to be well I guess that's another reason why I think they're a good pair Mm -hmm. because Yorkie is starting from the very beginning yeah and she's allowing Kelly to start over. And I think that's a beautiful thing too. I also generally am a sucker for super charismatic, popular and beautiful girl plus awkward nerdy girl because I feel like I'm the awkward nerdy right. girl. Yeah. <laughs> and you want to get with the beautiful, popular, charismatic yeah. girl. <laughs> I feel it. Yeah. I feel it. There's some like ship tropes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of them and that's one I'm a sucker for. Also, I'm a sucker for Koronasami at least they're very much a Supergirl and Lena Luthor situation mm. too where one of them is like the hero and the other is the head of like a mega empire um, yeah <laughs> she's kind of a weapons manufacturer you know I know <laughs> San Junipero ultimate OTP because of the ending and I think because of what they are able to inspire in each other really really enjoyed how this episode was played out. I kid you not, I sometimes have to remind myself that San Junipero isn't just a movie that I watched. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a, it's an episode in a series. Okay, so let's move on to the other ship that is a contender for barrier gaze. The shoot ship. Oh, yes. That is Root <laughs> and Shaw. Now, I know that some people don't consider this a barrier gaze trope because, spoilers, despite the fact that Root is shot and killed at the end, she sort of is still alive in the machine. Some people want to believe that she's still out there. It it was sort of a complicated ending and a lot of people interpreted it different ways and that was definitely the intent of the writers. What do you think, Aphrodite? In my view, Root is alive. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And she's alive in the machine. And the thing you have to understand about Root as a character is that she always hated humans. She always hated humans and she always identified with computers because she felt like code was perfect. For the machine to come back and take on Root's voice 
it was almost as if Ruth's dream came true. Right. Ruth became the thing that she admired the most. Yes, Ruth was killed by a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I was laughing earlier when you said by a stray bullet. And I was like, oh, yes, yep. I know. It's I know. Coming. Ruth was definitely killed by a bullet, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a bullet that she chose to take in order to save the creator of the machine. Ruth's purpose, first and foremost, was to serve the machine. It's a gray area barrier gaze moment. But mm-hmm. for me, I feel like Root still had agency in the end. In my view, it's not just Root and Shaw in the ship, but the machine is a part of the ship too. I think that that's a great, happy, and hopeful way to think about it. <laughs> I have to respectfully disagree. I'm a little bit more cynical. I feel like it's definitely a barrier gaze situation. I don't think that Root had to die in the situation that they were in. I think that it could have been like a close call type of thing, but I think that the machine taking on her voice and her persona is sort of like storing like an echo, you know, a memory of her, but it's not, it's not her. And now poor Shaw is going to be hard for her to move on because she has literally Root's voice like in her ear all the time. Root was killed and I think that it was unfair for her to be killed. I think that the writers should have let her live if they wanted the drama they could have again they could have just made it a close call like oh no root's gonna die but she made a miraculous recovery you know it's just like give us a happy ending please for once and poor shaw like this is sarah shahi we're talking about so you know you know how i feel about her she was finally breaking down her wall she found somebody that actually really loved her for who she was even though she felt like she was like a broken person how unfair is it that that was just taken away from her i I still think about what the other characters are left with in the wake of the queer person's death. Obviously, we disagree about this. Yeah, which is okay. fine. And yeah, I, I, yeah. Know for, I know for a fact this is what the makers of the show wanted. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted well, people to disagree. keep talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm still thinking about the machine. I'm optimistic because I also believe in the machine. Your argument that Root lives on and is more of an echo is totally fair. Mm-hmm. I actually think that Shaw and the machine make a lot of sense together as a ship. Oh, yeah. Um, so... <laughs> And Root and Shaw worked together really well as a team, too. Oh, yeah. They and I mean, their perfect. sex scene was bomb. Amy Acker broke her tailbone in oh that scene. They, they were going hard. They were not holding out. I mean, technically... I they did that for us. <laughs> technically, that was a simulation. That's true. But when the actresses filmed that scene, when they were those characters, they went hard for us. And I will never forget that. The other reason why they make sense together as a ship is because Root, again hates humans because they're so flawed. Mm -hmm. But to her, Shaw is almost like perfect code. Shaw, as Ruth described, if she was a shape, she would be a straight line, an arrow. The way that Shaw operates is exactly according to her protocol. Mm -hmm. Even if she does have an access to personality disorder where she can't feel things, she's still performing exactly the way that she's supposed to based on her code. I think that's why Ruth is so attracted to Shaw, plus the fact that she's hot and kicks ass, right? Um, (laughs) But why is Root perfect for Shaw? What Shaw appreciates about Root is that Root never makes her change or do anything that she doesn't want to do. Yes, I agree. Shaw really enjoys that kind of tense, teasing flirtation that Root is constantly doing, you know? I mean, she's always rolling her eyes at it and stuff, but it's like, oh, you know, deep down, she's into it. That first scene... We saw the sexual tension. I'm so happy that they responded to the fans' desires. (laughs) I mean, Amy Acker is the one who felt it. It was like, you know, I'm going to make this a little sexual. And... (laughs) 
God bless her for it. Oh my God, that iron oh in the hotel God. room, that yeah. was hot. They belong in our favorite queer women of color ships of all time because of how hot their sex would be. The number of times that simulation was repeated was 6,741 times. Oh. Oh. That basically <laughs> means mm-hmm. Shaw has been in a simulation where she is having raw, rough lesbian sex with Root that many times. Yep. Watching them flirt during the If Then Else episode. Oh my god. I know. Just like brilliant scenes there. And I love that scene where again this is a simulation. Root calls Shaw and she's like we belong together. One of these days you're going to realize that. And then Shaw says maybe if we were the last two people on earth and Root's response is, so you're saying maybe someday? Yeah, they make me smile. Like, I just genuinely smile during their scenes. Amy Acker as Root is one of the very few people that is worthy of Sarah Shahi. I mean, like, she's one of the few people I've seen with her on screen as her love interest that I'm like, yep, make it happen. Go for it. You have my blessings. It makes sense. They make sense together. And what I also appreciate is that if you're dating someone played by Sarah Shahi, you have to be shameless in your attraction to her. <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly what Root does. Root is absolutely shameless. Mm-hmm. They're flirting in the middle of like a gun shoot off because she can't help but comment about Shaw's perfect shape. And Shaw gives her a little smile, too. You know she's into it. Oh, my God. I could talk about shoot forever. That's why their panel was so great at Clexicon. They, oh, I know. they were there not just for the first Clexicon, but for the second one, too. And the fact that they came back and the actors were that invested. We know Sarah Shahi is, has always been kind to the queer community. I was really happy to see Amy Acker's involvement, especially given how <laughs> apparently painfully shy she can be. For anyone wondering how good of an actress she is, apparently she is pretty damn good because that does not show through at all when she is on screen. <laughs> Honestly, Amy Acker and Sarah Shahi as a ship too. Yeah. Because they're yeah. just adorable. <laughs> Sarah fields all the questions, makes them super sexual and inappropriate. And then Amy's just there kind of giggling and, and like blushing. Oh, I wish, yeah. Oh, I wish I could say that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Elena and Sid. Watching them on One Day at a Time is just so adorable. This is like queer young love at its finest. I felt like it was such a relatable storyline with the awkwardness. I actually told this to Isabella Gomez when I met her at Clexicon, who plays Elena. I was like, you know, I really like that Elena isn't model hot, you know, male fantasy depiction of a lesbian. I mean, she's like this nerdy queer kid. Sid is much the same way. So I just, I feel like they're a much more relatable couple when you see them on the screen. I really appreciate the writer's choices and depicting them that way. Mm-hmm. But I also love the storyline of Elena's awkwardness in trying to like date someone. Yes. <laughs> We've all been there yeah. where it's like, okay, I know I'm queer and now what? They're meet cute where when Sid starts to make a comment about how maybe they should split a cookie and then Sid is awkwardly like backing away when she thinks that Elena's not interested Elena and she's like no no uh, me gay me <laughs> I the iconic line and then Sid goes me gay too and I was like ah! <laughs> they're the perfect example of nerd love yes uh, yes they're nerd exactly. love to the max and I love that they're both fangirls like for their first date they were supposed to go to comic-con and Sid is dressed as a TARDIS from Doctor Who. Ah, I love Sid. I really love that their storyline was shown pretty much throughout the whole season. 
it wasn't just like a one-off episode where it was like oh and here's what happened to Elena okay back to everybody else you know we saw the progression and I really loved especially in was it the last episode when Elena goes to prom towards the end when she's trying to look like she's more popular than she is (laughs) and act like she has all these friends and Sid is like I don't care I don't like you because I think you're popular you know and it's just it's just the sweetest thing because I think a lot of young queer kids can relate to Elena and being unpopular mostly being friends with teachers <laughs> it was just a really sweet moment between the two of them where they were like I like you for you that's why they were true OTP yeah Sid is this adorable non-binary character mm-hmm. they're both in the same activist group with these other queer kids so they could go to protests together or they could go to cons together they could get ice cream together it's just the right amount of innocent for you to believe in love again yes Sid is really invested in who Elena is and Elena really likes Sid for mm-hmm. who they are that's beautiful and of course Sid gets along with the family so yes which is very important of course for Elena very important <laughs> on the show considering yes. this is a sitcom based in their living room yeah it's pretty important exactly. <laughs> I like that Elena's family has been supportive but it's like a realistic supportive where sometimes they're not quite understanding of Sid's gender identity or pronouns but they're trying You see TV shows or movies where the newly out queer person's family is just like super supportive and on board right off the bat. That's awesome. That's like a great fantasy world, but that's not how it really is. Usually, you know, there's like an adjustment period where they kind of have to get used to seeing their kids in a different light. You know, I don't know that we're ever going to get a sex scene. And I don't know that I would it would bother me if they didn't. Mm. Because I appreciate the fact that these are still teenagers, uh, whereas I'd be pretty pissed off for some for an adult ship. Yeah. Um, if we didn't yeah, get a yeah, sex scene. Exactly. <laughs> I think that the most I would expect would be maybe just alluding to mm-hmm. them having sex. It would have to be like their topic of the episode. You know what I mean? Like their plot line where they're kind of, is that something you're comfortable with? I don't know if I'm comfortable with it. You know what I mean? Kind of like navigating, like if that's something that they want to do. I wouldn't be surprised if they had Elena having to talk to her mom about sex. From um, Penelope's point of view it would be, okay, having the sex talk with your kid. You know, that's already one thing. But then having a queer sex talk with your kid when you yourself are not queer and you don't really know what to say. Yeah, I could easily see that being on the show. What's great is that they're both total noobs. So it's not like one person is so much more experienced than the other. Because a lot of times we see couples where one of them is more experienced than the other. So it's kind of nice to see young queer love being discovered. That ship is so pure and wholesome to me. I feel like they're like my gabies. So speaking of our gabies, Kadena from the bull type, I still think that they're a good ship. And I think that if they do break up, they're going to be like Sutton and Richard where they get back together. They are endgame material. Yeah. We'll say that. So we're kind of in the middle of our arc for them, which is why they may not seem like the perfect match right now. They both have a lot of growing to do, but I think they will grow in the right direction for each other. And that's how the writers are going to plan it out, at least for season three. I'm rooting for Adina's happiness and and for Kat's happiness. And I think Kat is eventually going to get there. And they're not 100% OTP yet. Kat needs to grow, get a little bit more relationship experience in general. Find a queer community, find queer friends. So Adina is not her only like access point. Adina at the same time needs to learn to, we saw at the end that she's a bit of a workaholic. So, you know, she could work on communication a little bit, but compared to Kat, I think she's doing pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) So it's hard for me to say that. Yeah. But yeah, Kat definitely in my mind uh, has a lot more to work on. These five ships of the five of them, my ultimate OTP is probably still San Junipero's Kelly and Yorkie. Wow, okay, um, okay. 
for me to choose a ship as my ultimate ship, are they a great match for each other? And then are they inspiring positive change in the other person? We really have your criteria outlined. <laughs> I feel like your mind works in bullet points. I'm like in a PowerPoint presentation mode most of the time. <laughs> The effects of getting a PhD on the human psyche. But actually, yeah. (laughs) I don't know if I can pick a favorite. I'm staring at the list. Oh, man, this is tough. Honestly, for me, of these five, I would say somewhere between Shoot and Sid and Elena. I don't have bullet points. This is just my gut. I'm really thinking about which couples sincerely made me happy when I saw them on the screen together. Like, which ones made me smile? I mean, shoot's not necessarily relatable, but I can relate to those feelings that they're having for each other. I feel that bond between them. I feel like they're both heartless murderers and they belong (laughs) together. Exactly. And then Elena and Sid, of course, are on the opposite end of the spectrum where they're like extremely relatable. (laughs) Because I'm basically seeing parts of my childhood being played out on the screen. I just want all the best for them. The thing that's also beautiful about the shoot ship is that for a character like Shaw, who has this personality disorder that prohibits her from connecting with other people emotionally. How in the world is someone like Shaw going to find or experience love? But maybe the closest thing she'll ever come to love is something like what she had with Root. The thing is, Root would never expect anything more from Shaw. And that's beautiful, too. Root would never expect Shaw to, like, get all romantic. Root doesn't even want that. Root says, no, Shaw is perfect exactly as she is. Yeah. No, and that's true. I think that's the essence of the two ships that I'm now definitively choosing (laughs) as my top two. (laughs) Is that there's no growing required, especially with Elaine and Sid. I mean, they're still young. And they'll definitely grow and change as people. But I feel like as they are right now, they, as well as Root and Shaw, just really, truly love each other for who they are. And they don't Mm. need to change. As nice as it is to see growth, especially on a TV show, I mean, you want to see character development and stuff like that. Sometimes it's kind of nice when you see people who are just, you know, they just click so well together as they are. And it's Mm. not like Kadena where it's so frustrating that they have these flaws that are in the way of like a perfect relationship. Okay, by that criteria, then I would say for sure Root and Shaw belong together. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. Looking at all of our five queer women mm-hmm. color ships, of the pairings, Root and Shaw belong the most together. Wow. Um, I cannot believe I swayed you. <laughs> you, you. You made a compelling argument. Thank you. I wasn't even trying to change your mind. I, I'm, I'm impressed with myself. Here's where the difference is. I was most pleased with the writing in Black Mirror San Junipero mm. but I am much more satisfied with the chemistry and the connection and the soulmate ultimately meant to be together fate brought them together destiny of <laughs> Root and Shaw <laughs> it's tough to compare the two of course because San Junipero is just one episode right mm. you know we're only getting one episode's worth of these characters versus the others are full shows and we got seasons of buildup. So the um, fact that Yorkie and Kelly are even on this list and were <laughs> up until a few moments ago at the top of your list, that shows how compelling that writing is. And so. honestly, I expect Amy Acker and Sarah Shahi to both be back for Clexicon again next year. They will. I, S- I think- Sarah can't get enough of queer ladies and she's just going to drag Amy along to wherever she goes. Honestly, I, I hope she's happening. wearing an equally slinky halter top. Probably just going to be wearing like a bandeau. Just nothing. <laughs> The fact that they had a Clexicon panel more than a year after Mm -hmm. the show had already ended and that this was their second time there representing the same ship speaks to how powerful the shoot fandom is. We were kind of coming up with a list of queer women of color ships that we could think of. There are some ships that we don't have enough information yet, but could be really great OTPs. So Cruz and Emma on Vita, Crema, by the way, 
Maria Lennon's who plays Cruz, tweeted us about this. Yeah, I, we were featured on a, another podcast called Ship It Real Good, talking about Vita, and she <laughs> she tweeted us about it, which is really cool. What I like about Cruz and Emma is that they're technically childhood friends, <laughs> and that's another like that's another ship trope that I'm really into: childhood friends, and then they like meet up again as adults, and then they're meant to be. And then our other one is Rosa and Alicia on Brooklyn Nine Nine. So we just saw at the end of the last season a snippet basically of Gina Rodriguez and Rosa Diaz going crazy for her (laughs) when she stepped out of the car. This has the potential to be a really big ship, but it has literally just started. We just now saw them. So for now I can say that I am shipping them, but I don't know what the ship consists of yet. So the writers want us to be shipping them. Otherwise we wouldn't have had Gina Rodriguez come out with the slow-mo and her hair flip. And Rosa's eyes. I mean, (laughs) we've never seen her react like like that. She's so rarely emote because she's afraid to Mm -hmm. and for her to have this sudden overwhelming attraction to another queer woman of color is fantastic they made it pretty clear that gina rodriguez is going to be recurring character i'm really excited to see where that goes next season on Mm -hmm. nbc the saviors of brooklyn 99 yeah Yeah. and i'm excited for crema on vita they're in the middle of filming season two already and i just Mm -hmm. want any sort of behind the scenes footage leak something some morsel for us to go off of for season two of vita yes we're desperate we will eat up literally anything the one show that neither of us followed much was Sense8 on Netflix. Yes. Yeah, I watched the first season of that show, and I, I really, really liked that relationship. Nomi and Amanita on Sense8. I have not watched the show because I watched the first episode, and it terrified me. Yeah. Um, and then I couldn't <laughs> keep watching. But in theory, I ship them. So in theory, I ship them together because when Nomi tells her partner about her ability to access the others, that she's a Sense8, Amanita believes her immediately. No, Amanita is there for her all the time. Really, they were my favorite part <laughs> of the show. And I didn't watch the second season because by the end of the first, it just it was a little bit too much for me. But if the show was just about those two women, I would easily watch it. <laughs> can, we, can we get a compilation video of just them? Oh, I'm sure there's exists. one. I'm I sure would be down one. for yeah. that. The trans character is played by a trans actress, mm-hmm. that she is representing trans lesbians, and that they are, you know, like we said before, an interracial ship. So of the characters that are included overall on, on our list of ships here, we've included neurodivergent characters, Shaw um, mm-hmm, being, mm-hmm. Um, being one of them. There's a non-binary character in the mix, Sid. And then obviously Nomi. We're getting a lot of diversity out of these ships. And quite a few of these involve women who identify as bisexual as well. Yeah, this is great. I feel like we actually mostly were in agreement all the critiques you had were totally fair. I, I, I appreciate that. I think your critiques were fair too. And I, I knew about most of our potential disagreements <laughs> ahead of time because we've talked about it extensively. But Oh, um, yeah. I mean, that's part um, of being a fangirl. You know, you agree to disagree and you have your own theories and it's all, it's all fun. The best part about being uh, a fangirl is being able to discuss and debate. Mm-hmm. Even our choice to have these five be the top five, the fact that we could even agree on which five was also pretty impressive. I know there are some diehard Bet and Tina shippers. I don't mm-hmm. understand them or know them yeah. personally. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good exercise. I feel like every fangirl should go through this process, like homework. 
think about what what does it take for a ship to become your favorite ship of all time? Yeah, I want to yeah. know. This was a healthy intellectual exercise for yes. me. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. Oh, yeah. this is great. This was super fun. Thanks for tuning in as we discussed our favorite queer women of color ships of all time. We hope you'll join us again next week. Yeah.